Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with bladder cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about urologic cancers with Dr. Joseph Brito. Dr. Brito is an assistant professor of urology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Joe, thanks for uh, joining me tonight. Thank you so much for having me. So urologic cancers, I'm thinking there's a prostate gland, <laughs> I guess that's a bladder. Yep, there there are several. So the most common for certain, as most men know, or prostate cancer for certain is very, very common. Bladder cancer as well. Uh, we also take care of pans- patients with uh, kidney cancer, mm. uh, which is very common. And then some of the less common ones, things like testicular cancer, which I know you did a show on recently. Uh, and then cancers of the urethra and even cancers of things like the penis and scrotum. So gotcha. it's a wide ranging. And do you do only male urologic cancers? We do not. So we take care of females with kidney cancer, bladder cancer as well, um, cancers of the ureters as well. But, um, you know, by the numbers, because of the prostate gland, it ends up being a lot of men. Hmm. So when you train in uh, to be a urologic cancerologist. Mm-hmm. Urologic <laughs> oncologist. There we go. Sure. Thank you. <laughs> I knew there had to be a word for it. Uh, don't turn 60. That's my, uh, my advice to you. Although better than the, the alternative. Okay. True. So if you want to become a urologic oncologist, mm-hmm. do you become a urologist first? Yes. So you do a residency in urology. Uh, usually that's one year of general surgery and then four or five years of urologic specialty training. And then generally speaking, you do a fellowship. So that's anywhere from one to three years of fellowship training afterwards. Specifically in cancer. Right, in oncology uh, of urologic cancer types. Although I assume that in your urologic residency, you're take you're doing a lot of this you care, are. right? You are, absolutely. Yeah, we see a lot, a lot. And um, there are many surgical procedures that we end up getting involved in, even early on in our training. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like removing a testicle for testicular cancer is a pretty basic operation. I so. hate it when you talk about it. Sorry, that. I won't bring it up. Yeah. I know it's a sore subject. Exactly. <laughs> Just teasing. Um, you have to. You need know, to have to go with that. I'm gotta, sorry. Got to keep it light. It's you got to okay. keep it light, right? Sure. So, uh, did you go into urology because you were interested in urologic cancer, or? Yeah, I was. Uh, I I actually did some research uh, in Boston at the Dana Farber Cancer Institute for a couple of years before uh, going to medical school. Okay. And so that was in basic science surrounding prostate cancer, and got interested in it at the time. Um, urolo- urologists tend to be early adopters of technology, so some of the gadgetry that we use in urology is is interesting. Robots. Robots, lasers, uh, scopes. Um, it kind of sounds like a sci-fi movie, but uh, we use all those things to take care of urologic cancers as well. So were you one of those robotic geeky kids? Did you like do I those robot competitions? I would call myself uh, geeky. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no. but, did but you, probably. But yeah. Did you belong to the robot club? I did not. No, there was no robot club where I was, at least. But I probably would have joined if there was one. I, I would guess yeah. so. So yeah, okay, but sure. you like the robots? I do. Yeah. So uh-huh. robotic surgery is actually it's been around for almost twenty years now. Believe it or not, we still think of it. I think a lot of people think of it as a new technology. Yeah. 
yeah. and, and in a lot of ways it is, um, and it's certainly advanced since it started, but we've been using the robot in urologic surgery for almost 20 years now. Hmm. Uh, and so urologists were some of the first to use the robot for uh, mostly prostatectomy to begin with, and it's become the gold standard for management of prostate cancer that's surgically treated now. So. Okay, and the prostatectomy is taking out the prostate. Correct, lines, right? removal of the prostate. Yeah. Yep. Gosh. I know that that's a complicated surgery. Yeah, uh, it's actually, it is complicated. There are multiple steps to it, but it's gotten a lot more uh, standardized, and many urologists are capable of doing that, even outside the major academic centers now. Um, we've started to use the robot for some other surgeries more commonly as well. So we use robotic surgery for kidney tumors now, whether we're remo removing the whole kidney or just the tumor off the kidney, which is called a partial nephrectomy. So um, it's become more widely adopted even outside the, the prostate surgery world. Hmm. And if you are using a robot uh, to take out all or part of a kidney, are patients having regular large kidney removal incisions, or is it done sort of like a laparoscopic kind of thing? Right. You're, you're correct. We don't... I don't know. I said one or the other. <laughs> it's okay. It's, I don't it, have an opinion. <laughs> it's, it actually saves... The reason we try to use it for most patients is because it saves them one of those large incisions. I see. So, so. It, it is more like laparoscopy. Correct. Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, if you've ever seen someone who had an open kidney surgery, they tend to have a big Gash. You know, shark bite type incision. Yeah. So, uh, And that's a big recovery time in the hospital, generally more blood loss. So the robot saves a lot of those complications. No, that's really interesting. In my field, of course, I don't deal with surgeons as much because I, um, because I take care of patients with leukemia. But occasionally, uh, we have uh, send patients to have their spleens removed, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, the laparoscopic splenectomy is is amazing right. compared to kind of the open splenectomies that they used to do. Sure, yeah. when when they can do that, it comes out like in a plastic bag or something. Right. Else. Yeah, we put it in a bag, and then the bag comes out through a much smaller incision than you would otherwise have to make to do the surgery. And I imagine that the recovery time has got to be less. It's it's great. So we when we do uh, an, a radical nephrectomy or removal of the whole kidney, uh, generally those patients are in the hospital for one, maybe two nights. Uh, if we were to do that surgery open, they'd be in the hospital for at least three, sometimes four, five, six days. So wow. it's a big difference in terms of hospital stay, blood loss, recovery time. Um, and then even once the patients are home, the things that they can do, you know, it's just easier to get around without having a big incision that you have to, to worry about. Yeah, absolutely. So how does this work? Um, do patients come to you with a diagnosis of cancer already? It, it depends a little bit on the pathway through which they get there. So often, Urologists who specialize in oncology will be in a big, either a bigger practice where you have some general urologists who will start the workup, or their patients who are sent from their primary care physician who may be kind of a little earlier on the path, mm -hmm. um, which I guess gets into a bigger topic of how we detect these cancers. So, um, for instance, prostate cancer, which uh, many people know is detected often by a blood test called mm -hmm. PSA, and that can be started by primary care physicians through screening protocols. Mm -hmm. But that's controversial still, isn't it, in terms of whether people should be getting screened? Yeah, it's a good question. On up and down. It's become a little less controversial in the past year, actually. So um, what you're referring to is back in 2012, the United States Preventative Services Task Force, or USPSTF, came out. <laughs> yeah, it's a mouthful. Exactly. Um, came out with a actually a recommendation against using PSA for right. prostate cancer screening. And there was a big uproar in the urologic community because we are the ones who end up taking care of those patients when they're not screened and they present with more advanced disease. You so, mean it wasn't because of fewer surgeries and less income? 
Uh, it was not. I, I can't say that for everyone, but certainly we, that's how we felt, you know, as a community is that these patients were showing up after that recommendation hit the press with metastatic disease, you know, urinary obstruction, more advanced symptoms. Um, but, I was... thought the, but I thought the recommendation about screening had been because it wasn't really felt that lives were being saved. So it's a good question. There's, there's kind of a lot that goes into it. What, what I would say is that some of the data that was used to come up with that recommendation was based on an earlier era in the management of prostate cancer. So in the modern era, a lot of low-grade prostate cancers that are detected are not managed with surgery or radiation at all. They're actually followed through a protocol we call active surveillance. Come on. True. You mean, so, I'm going to sit here, and you're going to tell me that I have cancer in my prostate gland, and you're going to say, live with it? We might do that. It depends what it is. So there's a grading system for prostate cancer. And if you're classified in The Jackie Gleason stage? It's not, not Jackie, but yes, Gleason, the Gleason grading system. So if you end up with what's considered to be a low-risk prostate cancer based on your biopsy, uh, you may not be well-served by surgery or radiation because mm -hmm. there are side effects to those treatments. So mm -hmm. if we can avoid those side effects but still ensure that you're not going to develop a disease that's going to kill you or have you suffer from, um, then that's really what we try to do for most of those patients now. Yeah, but I, I would imagine there must be some patients for whom that's highly anxiety-producing. Absolutely right. You're right. And and actually, the data show us that most patients that come off of those active surveillance protocols are not because their disease progresses, but because of they can't take. other factors. Yeah. Right. So what does the active surveillance involve? Generally speaking, we follow the PSA more closely than we would for a general screening protocol. So that's usually every six months or so. Um, we check the PSA values, and then they will have repeat prostate biopsies at intervals depending on what the PSA does and what their previous biopsy showed. Hmm. So if the PSA is going up, then you get worried. Right. And we, we look at things like how quickly it's rising and, and what their physical exam is like to help determine that. And how often would, they, would this sort of be done quarterly? Or? So it, actually much less frequently than that. Initially, when the, the protocols came out, they were biopsying those patients every year. Mm -hmm. uh, we now try to use technologies like MRI of the prostate and MRI-guided prostate biopsy to risk stratify them a little better and try to space the biopsies out to even as much as every two years. Oh, wow. So it's a little less of a burden for the patient. Yeah, that's not so bad. You know, I, I know in my patients uh, who have leukemia or lymphoma that's been in remission, you know, they're often able to put things out of their brains for a long time, but then like the week before the appointment, they get very anxious. Of course, yeah, of course. Yeah. So I can imagine that uh, that if I had a re reassuring physician uh, who's telling me that I was in, in good shape, being monitored and every two years I could probably put it out of my head reasonably well. Right, right. And that's part of the job. I mean, that's part of the, the so-called art of medicine, I think, is trying to help explain those things to patients and, and alleviate some of that anxiety. But, you know, given, you know, you, you often hear people complaining about, you know, what food is allowed this week in the New York Times. You know, coffee's <laughs> good, coffee's bad, sure. fat's good, fat's bad, right? Yep. So, and, and similarly, you know, we, we've had this back and forth a little bit about the PSA, right? Uh, you know, when it was the darling test and then it was like you shouldn't have one. And right. I even had that myself because when I Moved up to Connecticut four years ago. Uh, my internist said, well, you're an oncologist. Do you, do you want me to screen your PSA? And I said, well, you know, I, I kind of feel that perhaps I should live the values that I teach, which in those days was probably don't do the screening. So mm -hmm. there was about a year that I didn't get screened, although I had been screened previously, which made me feel more comfortable not being screened. Right. And then I talked to one of your colleagues. I think it was Dr. Kenny, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
and he told me all the reasons why I should be screened. I said, okay. Right. <laughs> and I went back to being screened. Right, right. right. So just to come full circle, the, the USPSTF changed their recommendation last year uh, and actually upgraded it from, you know, they shouldn't be screened to that it's more of a shared decision-making process and put it back in the hands, I think, of the clinician and of the patient. So now it's a discussion that we have probably like you've had with your, you know, your physician about whether or not it's a beneficial thing on a patient-by-patient basis. Right. And at what age should men consider being screened? So generally, screening population is 55 to 69. Uh, There are certain populations who should be screened earlier. So African-Americans are at a higher risk for prostate cancer and should be screened at an earlier age. And then there are some patients who we feel are at higher risk for having a genetically inherited type of prostate cancer. So um, there are certain genes that have been implicated in prostate cancer, and that's a field that's really exploded over the past few years in terms of the number of candidate genes. But for instance, the BRCA1 and 2 genes, which classically have been associated with breast cancer, right. um, are now being found to be an increasing proportion of prostate cancers are related to those as well. I see. So I guess if you're a guy and you had your mother had breast cancer, especially at an early age, and there's a couple aunts right. or aunts, as you might say up here, <laughs> <laughs> breast cancer, you might question whether you, you're one of these people who should be starting screening earlier if you could have BRCA. Right. So actually last year there was a big meeting in Philadelphia where they kind of came up with guidelines for genetically inherited types of prostate cancer. And if you had a a family relative who was under the age of 50 who was diagnosed with breast cancer um, and had a prostate cancer diagnosis, then you would be kind of more at a higher suspicion for being tested. So you would have to get one of those BRCA testing genes. But those are men who already have prostate cancer. Right. So it's, it's kind of at an early stage right now, um, where we're not really sure, should we screen everyone, should we not? Gotcha. Um, But we do know that if you do get a diagnosis of a BRCA, you know, positive mutation, um, specifically number two, BRCA2, that you're more likely to have an aggressive type of prostate cancer. So those patients should be managed probably a little bit more aggressively. Hmm, Fascinating. Uh, Right now, we're going to need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about advances in urologic cancers with Dr. Joseph Berteau. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for patients with different types of lung, bladder, ovarian, breast, and blood cancers. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about survivorship. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. For cancer survivors, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and some survivors face long-term side effects resulting from their treatment, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources are available to help keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Joseph Brito. We've been discussing general urologic health in urologic cancers. Joe, uh, prior to the break, we were talking about prostate cancer, I think, which is uh, obviously um, something that a lot of middle-aged men worry about and think about, and mm-hmm. a lot of people know uh, people who've had prostate cancer or should be screened for prostate cancer, and uh, and you uh, mentioned that uh, that surgery uh, surgical approaches are, are safer than they used to be. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I would say that the recovery times are better, the blood loss is lower, and we know that our, our surgical outcomes from an oncology perspective are just as good. So. But what men are worried about is erections. Correct. Always. And you're not you haven't mentioned that. <laughs> well, we hadn't really talked about it, but well, we certainly can. Well, you just can. said everything is great. <laughs> we certainly can. Um, so, you know, erectile function is always a concern for prostate surgery. The reason for that is that the nerves that help to control erection go right past the prostate. So um, there was a big uh, advance by a guy named Pat Walsh who kind of helped to discover these neurovascular bundles that go past the prostate. So what we try to do now for patients who it makes sense for from a cancer control perspective Perspective is to save those nerve bundles when we do prostatectomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just called a nerve sparing procedure. Not everyone is a candidate for that, so it depends on what their biopsy shows us about how advanced the cancer is. Certainly, if it's involving those nerve bundles and we can't save them, it's just not safe for the patient. But the best predictor for how a patient's erectile function will be after surgery is how it is before surgery. So it's an important thing for the clinician and the patient to discuss beforehand to make sure we kind of know what the baseline function is. There's an old joke about, doctor, will I play the piano again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Didn't play the piano before. Exactly. And, and for the most part, we can get patients back to a functional level. It just depends on what needs to be done to get there. So there are many different therapies for erectile dysfunction after prostatectomy, um, which are sort of, of escalating. Uh, invasiveness to try to help patients get back there. Right, and erections are one thing, but orgasms are not always the same, right? Correct. So as part of a prostatectomy or prostate removal, we also remove the seminal vesicles, which are right behind the prostate. And that's where the largest volume of ejaculate comes from. So um, certainly things will not look the same, but we think that the sensation is the same. It's just that the actual act might be quite different. So if you uh, are able to spare the nerves and if the men uh, retain their ability to make erections, they should expect to be able to have orgasms. They should, uh-huh. yes. I've also heard from one of your colleagues, I think, that for those who are not able to have erections, some of them can have orgasms anyway. Is that Correct. true? Correct. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. Um, okay, so that's great. Uh, and, and some patients can elect to have radiation, I guess. Absolutely. Instead of... Mm-hmm. Right, which has its own set of pluses right. and minuses. Right. So there's, it's really become a multidisciplinary approach to prostate cancer. So uh, for most patients, they should at least be counseled on the options of surgery versus radiation. And, and there's, it, again, depends on where their cancer is and what the risk is. But, uh, but for most patients, if they're a candidate for surgery, they're probably also a candidate for radiation. And it just depends on the individual patient and what their preferences are. Gotcha. Well, before the show, you were telling me that you'd recently moved out to the new Yale operation at the at uh, Lawrence Memorial, mm-hmm. which right. I think is in New London, right? Correct. So, uh, and you told me that it's a, it's a growing operation, but but not so big. So, how does the patient who sees you get the multidisciplinary interaction? Sure. So, we are affiliated with the Smilo Cancer Hospital here, um, and truthfully, for really any urologist uh, taking care of patients with urologic cancers now, they should be plugged into a multidisciplinary team. So, we work with medical oncologists and radiation oncologists to help to come up with an appropriate treatment plan for every patient. And, you know, being plugged into an academic medical center helps with that. But um, for the most part, all urologists should at least have that capacity available to them. Even in community hospitals. Yeah, they should. Gotcha, gotcha. So um, let's say I'm a man and... uh, which I am, and let's say I have prostate cancer, which as far as I know, I don't. Okay. I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I hope not, too. Uh, and uh, and I've been treated successfully uh, by you, and I've had positive outcomes in all the dimensions that are important to all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
that's always possible that the cancer comes back, right? Right. It is possible. So it's important to monitor patients even if they've had a prostatectomy or have had radiation for prostate cancer. Generally speaking, we would follow your PSA level, so your blood test. It becomes more of a marker of what's happening inside at that point uh, as opposed to a screening test where it's used uh, initially for patients. Uh, And we really use that as sort of a yardstick of what's going on. So if the PSA starts to rise after you've had your prostate removed, Um, It really shouldn't come from anywhere except for prostate cancer at that point because your prostate is gone. Uh, So that's an indication that things may be coming back. And that does happen. It it depends a lot on what your initial biopsy showed, what your surgical specimen tells us about whether or not all of the cancer was removed or not. Uh, And then when we do a prostatectomy, we also take lymph nodes out of the pelvis. So that can help us to know whether or not the disease has spread at that point. Mm -hmm. And all those things just get factored in when we think about recurrence risk for a patient. Mm -hmm. And what happens if somebody does recur? Sure. It depends a little bit on where they're recurring. So if If you were to have surgery and you had what's called a positive margin, meaning that there may be a small amount of cancer left inside, uh, you could have a recurrence just in that one spot. Mm -hmm. So those patients may be candidates for adjuvant radiation therapy or radiation after surgery to try to get rid of that one spot. Okay. If you're to have a recurrence that's more widespread throughout the body, um, you know, metastatic disease, then you may be treated very differently. So. Prostate cancer is interesting in that it's sensitive to hormone deprivation or blockage of testosterone, uh, which really sort of starves the cancer of its um, food supply, if you will. Right. Uh, And so that was a major discovery for prostate cancer. So there are multiple medications available now to block testosterone, which can control cancer no matter where it is in the body. Hmm. That's great. But of Mm -hmm. course, those drugs have side effects as well. Absolutely. They do. Gotcha. Um, Well, that's really interesting, and uh, it's good to know that uh, there are backup plans. There are, yeah. But I think it's important for people to know that just because they've had surgery or radiation, they do need to be followed. So it's, you know, you can't just assume that things are gone and they're gone forever. At the very least, people should have their PSA checked once a year, even if they've had surgery or radiation. Right. And if they're working with a good urologist like you, they'll be informed. Right. And they should be followed, right? Gotcha. So the prostate cancer, though, is not the only cancer that you deal with. You you gave us kind of a list. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think a lot of people don't think a lot about uh, kidney cancer. Right. Right. I think you're right. Yeah. How uh, do people find out that they have kidney cancer? So it's kidney cancer used to be diagnosed or we would teach the medical students that it was diagnosed where you had a big flank mass and gross hematuria and pain. A hematuria is blood in the hematuria, urine? Hematuria, right. Hematuria being being blood that you can see in the urine. Uh-huh. Gross, gross meaning you can just see it yourself. I remember being taught that, that kidney cancer was like the great imitator. Uh, meaning that it can cause all sorts of perineoplastic other, syndrome. Other symptoms yeah, yeah. that, that internists would have trouble tracking. Right, down. right. And that certainly can happen as well. Uh-huh. Um, more commonly today, we find kidney cancers incidentally. So they're found when patients have a CT scan for some other reason. You come into the emergency department with abdominal pain or some sort of GI bug, and you get a CAT scan, and we'll see usually a small tumor on the kidney. So mm. um, we've seen a, an earlier detection of those tumors based on just the fact that they're found more incidentally now. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And that's probably better because I'm, I'm guessing a smaller cancer can be cured more easily. Right. It's certainly easier to manage from a surgical perspective. So Using your robot. Right. Exactly right. So we use robotic surgery to do a partial nephrectomy or removal of just a small part of the kidney. And we can take the tumor off usually by leaving the, and leaving the rest of the kidney behind, which saves patients certainly kidney function over time. Uh, and also if they're to de- uh, you know, develop a tumor on the other kidney, Um, it's a way for us to make sure that they're not suddenly without kidneys at all. 
People can live well without a whole kidney. They can be missing a, a can live with a single kidney, right? And that dialysis. Yeah. So kidneys are a paired organ. So as long as the other kidney is functional, and um, we can usually tell that by a CT scan, but there are other tests that can help us to figure that out. If we can't tell, um, then certainly a whole kidney can be removed. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that I, th- I think is one of the scarier symptoms for patients in general is, is blood in the urine, which is a pretty common symptom, right? It's very common. You're right. Uh, it tends to be a little bit more common in women. Um, you know, urinary tract infections can cause blood in the urine. And one thing that we as urologists make sure that patients know and, and try to get this word out to primary care doctors and emergency departments as well is that blood in the urine that you can see, gross blood in the urine, is really never normal and shouldn't be considered that. So mm. um, it, unfortunately, what we found and the research shows us is that women tend to present with higher stages of bladder cancer because they get diagnosed with a UTI when they have blood in the urine. They may be treated with multiple courses of antibiotics before they get referred to a urologist. So certainly if patients are seeing blood in their urine, they really should approach their primary care doctor about being tested further. Um, And if there's no infection there, they really should be sent to a urologist. I see. some of those patients, though, might have kidney stones, for example, right? True. So when, when patients are sent to us with blood in the urine, we generally do several tests to really decide where things are coming from. Um, a CT scan is usually the first step, and that's done with and without contrast. And the, the non-contrast phase shows us kidney stones. So that's part of our workup of patients with blood in the urine. I see. So. Don't necessarily panic if you have blood in your urine, but take it seriously. Right. It could be nothing uh, or at least something not as serious as, you know, kidney or bladder cancer, but it should be worked up. It should be investigated. Yeah, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Well, unlike the uh, kidneys where there's two of them, there's only one bladder. So how do you deal with that? So if patients have bladder cancer that's advanced and in urology, that's generally bladder cancer that's invading into the layers of the bladder. Most importantly, if it starts invading into the bladder muscle, then those patients may need to have their bladder removed. That's Mm. a big surgery. Um, And as you can imagine, as you alluded to, if your bladder's removed, then you kind of have a plumbing issue. So how do you get get the urine out of the body? How do you? There are many ways to do it. Um, We we have to do what's called a urinary diversion. So um, that's anywhere from taking a small piece of intestine and creating what's called a conduit or a way for urine to get out of the body to actually building a new bladder out of intestinal tissue. No kidding. Yeah. And that's a little bit more of an involved process, but depending on patients' desires and the stage of their disease, they may be candidates for that. So if you build one of these, I guess, neobladders, if mm-hmm. you will, or yeah. pseudobladders, then people urinate normally through their penis or through their uh, urethral yeah, us, yeah. yeah, it's normal-ish. Uh, it does require a lot of learning in terms of how, how that works. Um, you know, the sensation is very different because right. it's not innervated or, you know, the nerves don't travel the same way sure. as they would have for a normal blood. So how do you know when you have to go and how do you make it happen? Right. So sometimes patients will actually start to feel a sensation. It's probably it's very different. different right. Um, or they void at regular intervals during the day. Gotcha. But, mm-hmm. but it anatomically feels more normal feels right i mean in the sense that you are coming out the right coming out of the right hole yeah exactly right yeah yeah huh interesting um and otherwise they need to have a a diversion that's like a colostomy bag right except instead of stool it would collect urine right Uh um and 
you know, I, I've had patients like that. It doesn't seem very unacceptable. It's actually, they've done a lot of quality of life studies to see what patients desire. And with those more complicated procedures like the neobladder, there are, are also higher complication rates. And some of those patients will have trouble urinating normally, so they may need to catheterize themselves. So a lot of patients will decide they don't want to go through that and will opt for, you know, a more simple diversion like an ileal conduit. I see. And they do well with those. Um, and it can be pretty easy to take care of uh, with proper education. And I hate to dwell on sex, but uh, <laughs> if you have bladder cancer, uh, A, is future sexual function going to be possible? And is that going to impact the choice of the surgery? Right. It's a little more complicated, I think, for bladder cancer patients than for prostate cancer patients. When we do remove the bladder of a man, we generally will remove the prostate and seminal vesicles as well. It's a little bit harder to do a nerve-sparing procedure in I those see. patients, and uh, most commonly we don't do a nerve-sparing procedure. So uh, there still can be sexual function, but it has to be a little bit different, and sometimes they'll have to go actually additional surgeries, have to undergo additional surgeries to get to that point. I see. Mm -hmm. and, and what about for women? Uh, so for women, most commonly when we remove the bladder, we also remove part of the vagina. So there is a part of that surgery which involves reconstruction of the vagina. I see. Depending on what the stage of the cancer is, that may be easy to do or may be more difficult if it's more invasive. Hmm. It, of course, also depends on the patient's desire. So most of the patients undergoing that surgery are in their 70s or even 80s and may not be interested yeah. in that. Yeah. <laughs> or they may be. Easy for you to say, young surgeon. Yeah, true, you're right. But it is something that we need to discuss with the patient beforehand so we know what, what their desire is. Does your multidisciplinary team include uh, psychologists or social workers to kind of deal with these sexual and uh, identity losses? Absolutely. So social workers should be a big part of the team. Um, and increasingly, because our, our detection methods and our surgeries are getting better, these patients are surviving longer. So there's a big survivorship movement now to try and help patients, to help patients help patients, really, um, to help some of these survivors talk to some patients in the earlier stages of diagnosis and help them understand what their diagnosis is and make the right decision. Dr. Joseph Brito is an assistant professor of urology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.